are headed downstairs right now. We'd love for you to be a part of what we have going on downstairs. We've got a lot of little ones. Very exciting. Um, yeah, it's warm. I heard last week it was really warm. So uh, it's, we're fixing it. By that, I mean we're not really doing much. So we've got the AC down. I just want to make you feel like it was under control. We're turning it down. We've got a little problem with this side over here, which we're going to get addressed this week. So hopefully you'll come next week and it'll be great. We'll do it before August. That way we'll, uh, we'll all make it. So it'll just cause me to want to preach faster, right? So that'll be good. So uh, I'll try not to go too slow. So we are in this movement through the book of Acts, this journey. It's taken us quite some time, but that's because we're going verse by verse, moment by moment, word by word. And we're looking at that call that is for you and I and for us as a church that we are called to follow um, Jesus into the world, this sort of sent call, which acts as more than a book. It's a, um, it's a calling. It's a propelling forward of where our faith in Christ meets how we're going to live. And so we've really kind of explored a huge movements in history to this book, and, and we're hitting another really transitional point today. So last kind of couple of weeks, we've been really looking at chapter 10, which I've been telling you all along changes the course of redemptive history forever. So Acts 10 is the sort of monumental, uh, monumental moment in the book, changes everything. And we're going to see that swing even a little bit more as we transition into the middle of chapter 11, because now we're going to see the missionary movement of Acts begin. And that's what we sort of know Acts for, right? The early part is the birth of the church, and then the rest of the book of Acts is the missionary movement. Paul and Barnabas and Silas and all these folks traveling all over the world, taking the gospel uh, to the world. But that does not happen without what took place in chapter 10. Now, just as a way of brief recap, chapter 10 is that pivotal sort of redemptive history changing piece where God has thrown open salvation to the Gentiles, right? He gave Peter this, this vision that said, look, I'm about to open wide through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ salvation, and it won't just be for the Jewish people. Instead, it will be for the Gentiles as well. And we walked through those past weeks of the vision that Peter had of the sheet that was being lowered down and his involvement with uh, uh, Cornelius' household in Caesarea and how he shared the gospel with them and how they were meeting in his house and the Holy Spirit showed up in the same way that it did in Acts 2, that it just fell on that room, and all the Gentiles that were present in Cornelius' house received the Holy Spirit in the exact same way that those uh, that were part of the Acts 2 movement at Pentecost received the Spirit. And, and Peter was really thrown off, and everybody around him couldn't believe it because they, the Gentiles, had received the Holy Spirit in the exact same way as the Jewish believers had done. And what Peter basically said was that it's undeniable that God's hand is on these people and that salvation is also for them. And so he had them baptized. And then two weeks ago when we were doing a little marathon church on Saturday night, we talked about how the fact that Peter went back to Jerusalem, had been part of this incredible thing where God had broken down in his heart what he had harbored in there, thinking salvation was just for Jewish people through Christ. God had broken those doors open. Salvation was now for the Jews, they'd received, or for the Gentiles, they'd received the Holy Spirit. He goes back to Jerusalem and waiting for him at the gate were a bunch of Jewish Christians that were furious. And they weren't furious that the Holy Spirit had been given. They weren't furious that he had baptized. They were so mad at him for eating at the house of an uncircumcised person. In other words, of a Gentile person, right? And so Peter explained to them what God had done. And, and for a temporary time, and they say, man, that's, that's really great. So who are we to deny God? A couple weeks ago, I told you, it's just going to be temporary. Once the Jewish Christians see how many Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, they're going to get kind of frustrated and want to close the ranks again. In Acts 15, they're going to kind of reject 
the Gentile Christians again. But for now, um, we see this sort of floodgates that have been opened. And what we're going to experience today is that this movement of salvation, the Gentiles, makes way for the Great Commission and makes way for the missionary movement of Acts. If God does not do this in the life of Peter and the, and the Jewish believers, there's no missionary movements that follow the book of Acts. So the reason this is such great news for you and I is that we are grafted into this Gentile picture of followers of Christ. That God, through Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, has given us access to himself, through the person of Christ, that we too can be saved. It's incredible stuff. So that message, that gospel message, is now going out into the world. And we're going to see today kind of the roots of that missionary movement. But not just as a going but roots that take place in our heart as a church and our heart as individuals. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, and we're going to be right in the middle in verse 19. So all that recap, uh, you know, important, but you don't have to know all the details to kind of know where we're being today, so where we are today. So if you've missed a lot of that, don't sweat it. <clears throat> I'm going to catch you right up to speed. So before we dive into it, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll open God's word together. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have um, that you have given us this promise of life in Christ. God, we thank you that you have given us salvation. Lord, that not one of us could do anything to earn it, but instead, Lord, through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus, you have freed us. Lord, Acts 10, we realize, changes things. Because now... The movement of salvation is open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. God, that you died so that anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior might not only have an abundant life here on earth, but eternal life with you. Salvation. That even in their state of deep, ugly sinfulness, God, you cover us with your Son. And that you give us the opportunity to stand before you. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that what we'll see is that mission actually begins with a movement that takes place in our hearts. <clears throat> Lord, living as a sent community begins with reconciling a few things that are hard to grasp in our own hearts. Take a moment right where you are and just ask God to teach you something new this morning. Just ask him to teach you something through his word. for someone beside you, around you. We do this each week. I encourage you to pray for someone else besides yourself. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we open your word together, that you would reveal truth to us. We know that encounter with your word is an encounter with you. God, we don't take it lightly. So teach our hearts this morning, God, and reveal yourself to us. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So all that's come to a close, right? We're, we are, uh, Peter is back in Jerusalem. They've all come to sort of a common understanding that this incredible thing has happened in Cornelius' house. And the Holy Spirit has been given to the Gentiles the same way it was given to the Jews, with the same manifestations. It kind of showed up, fell on all of them. They began speaking in tongues, praising God. The exact same thing that happened in Acts 2. And when Peter shares this with the believers in Jerusalem, they've got no option except to say, man, okay, God is good. Like, if he's given them salvation, who are we to deny God, right? And at the end of, of 18 and verse 11, they basically say this. So then God 
granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. So now this message of salvation is being carried out both into the hearts of Jewish believers and into the hearts of Gentile believers, not in a second-class way, not in a secondary way, but in a very real, powerful way that was the same as it was given to the Jewish people. Now, for you and I, this is not near as earth-shattering as it would have been to the Jewish people. For thousands of years, they believed that they were the only people of God, and rightly so, and they believed that they were better than everybody else because God had chosen them. And what God is basically doing is saying, yes, however, this message is now for the world. And so they were rightly rattled a little bit. Well, this is what happens in verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message to the Jews, uh, only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barabbas, or sent Barnabas, different guy, by the way. Barnabas, he's a murderer and a thief. He's alive, though, because they traded him for Jesus, but that's fine. Barnabas uh, to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of God there, and he was glad, and he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught uh, great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up through the Holy Spirit, predicted a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to their own ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And they did sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So, as we're reading through the book of Acts, it looks sort of like a sort of transition moment, that something's happening in Antioch, and the church is growing, and this sort of simultaneous movement that was happening in, in the Jewish people in, in Jerusalem that were saying, oh, the, the message is for the, the Gentiles. It's actually spreading, and it's happening in Antioch. Now, you remember back in chapter 8 when we studied Stephen. Remember, Stephen was stoned to death, right? He was the first martyr. And as they were heaping rocks upon him, right, Saul, who we also see here in this passage, stood there giving his approval. Remember, he was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He was a big deal. And he was basically going around and persecuting Christians and all those kinds of stuff. Well, he was giving his approval. And as Stephen died, the heavens opened up and all this incredible stuff happened. But we read in chapter 8 that on that day that Stephen died, an incredible persecution broke out. And believers were scattered all over the known world an attempt to decentralize this growing religious movement. Now, we know we followed some of those footsteps. You remember, we followed Philip to Samaria, and then we followed his journey of the Holy Spirit all the way down to that old road that led to Gaza. We followed sort of this scattering. But what we're learning here, what Luke, our author, tells us, is that the scattering was still very much a part of people's lives. They captured these Christians and spread them all over the area. And some of those guys even ended up as far as like Phoenicia and Cyrus and Antioch, right? Cyprus and Antioch. And those were basically really northern areas, right? So Phoenicia was 120 miles long and it ran up the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Cyprus was a little island in the northeast corner. And then Antioch was a, a town in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, like 15 miles in. It's a different Antioch that we're going to see them going to in the Greek world, way, way up here. This is... Uh, 
um, Antioch in Syria, right? So it's a different town, but it's still way far north of Jerusalem. And basically what Luke is saying is he's saying, look, there are Jewish believers that were scattered to all these areas. And you know what they're doing? They're sharing the gospel with Jewish people. Because this movement of the kind of the world being open, the gospel world being open to the Gentiles hadn't infiltrated these guys' hearts at this point in time. So they're sharing the gospel with the Jews. But then he said, however, there were a few there, a few believers there uh, that were from Cyrene and from Cyprus, and they were sharing the gospel with Gentiles. So somehow in the mix of all this, there were some Gentiles saved, and they began to share the gospel with Gentiles in Antioch. And an incredible thing happened. God's hand was on them, and their numbers grew by thousands. I mean, were exploding. Right? Incredible things are happening in this Greek town of Antioch. Now, word gets back to Jerusalem that the Holy Spirit is moving and the church is exploding in Antioch. And so they get together, the apostles, and they say, we need to send someone to check this out. This happened all the time. So they send Barnabas up there to Antioch to figure out what's going on. Right? you got to remember that Jerusalem's in a really interesting time right now. We'll look at this in a second. They're in a little bit of a famine, and, and there weren't a whole lot of believers there. Most of the believers were scattered all over the place. Who was left were a few of the apostles, right? And that was about it. But they were the, the leaders, and so when word reached them, they sent Barnabas up to Antioch to kind of check it out. And he gets there, and he's incredibly encouraged. He can't believe it. He's so joyful for these people. that They're experiencing God's move, and he begins to encourage them and tells them to be true to the Lord. And then he says, you know what, i gotta find, I got to find Paul. He would love this, right? Because we met Paul a few chapters ago, and he had a huge heart for Gentile people. And so Barnabas goes 90 miles to Tarsus, one way, finds, seeks him out, and finds Paul and brings him back. And for a single year, a whole year, they stay there with the church, and they're teaching huge numbers of people. And then Luke tells us that Barnabas was a great man because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and his faith. And they stayed there, and they taught and God blessed them, and their numbers grew like crazy. So they were there, and they were teaching. And as they were doing that this year, our last little section says that a prophet came up from Jerusalem, a guy by the name of Agabus. And he said, listen, and a famine is about to reach the entire Roman world. In fact, it's already going on in Jerusalem. We know this because they sent food to him. And, and Luke tells us this is actually true, right? Because it happened during the reign of Claudius. But a famine's coming. And it started in Jerusalem, and it's moving its way up, and it's going to be known to the entire world, the Roman world. And so those new believers gathered there, decided to do something remarkable. They pooled their resources, and they all gave according to their own ability, and they sent money down to Jerusalem, to the brothers in Jerusalem, brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, through Barnabas and Saul. And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem. Now, all that story, right, seems like a lot, but there's incredible things that are happening here. There's incredible words for us, not only personally, but for us as a church. Because things are exploding, and they're happening uh, in a little bit at a faster rate than the Jewish leaders are comfortable with. Yet they're watching God move, and so they have to embrace it on some level. But there's some things in here that I think really resonate uh, kind of in a way that I don't live. And in a way that I want to live, in a way that I want us to live as a church. Because the first thing that we see is that as a church, we're talking about mission and we're talking about movements. We're talking about these things beginning in our hearts that we have got to fight the urge, right, to measure and compare and keep up. Now, usually when the hand of the Lord showed up in a place, growth took off like crazy. In fact, we see things like 3,000 people being added to the number in a single day. 
We see that kind of explosive growth happening in the church in Antioch. God's hand is on it, and it explodes. This is not uncommon, right? You, You put this kind of massive growth and God's blessing together with our Western culture infatuation, things big. And you begin to understand how sometimes when we look at churches, we think that size, right, equates to God's blessing. So the bigger a church, the bigger a movement, the more God is blessing it. Because we see evidence of those things happening here, right? But we also have a Western culture that says everything bigger is better. From companies to bank accounts to buffets. Anything massive has got to be good, right? When you couple those things together, then surely these massive massive churches are, are God's blessing. And while there is truth in that, we have to be very careful of that. Do you want to know the largest recorded worship service in all of Scripture? You may remember it. It's a big deal. Some scholars say that there were as many as 1.5 to 3 million people present, right? There was dancing, and there was celebration, and it was all of God's people, and it was incredible. And it takes place in Exodus 32. God had delivered the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. He had parted the Red Sea completely, and they passed through on dry land. God had given them passage, he had saved them, he had redeemed them, they had, he had wa- they had watched him do incredible things. And they gathered together to celebrate God's goodness at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to physically meet with God, and he's gone for a little while, and this incredible, huge gathering of Israelites, one, five, three million of them, like the city of Houston, size-wise, right, gathered at the base of this mountain, and they get impatient. Because Moses has been gone too long. And so they turn to their worship leader, right? Their leader, a guy by the name of Aaron, and they say, hey, he's taking forever. We want to worship. Make us something. And so Aaron says, yeah, he's been gone a while. Let's do this. Let's forget what God has done for us just a few days earlier and have all the women here pass up your gold earrings and necklaces and all the gold we brought out of Egypt. Pass it all up. However long that took to pass all that gold up. And Aaron melted it down, and he formed with his own hands this golden calf. And the people began to worship it, and they began to celebrate it, and they had festivals, and they sang, and they sang. And God up on Mount Sinai looks at Moses, and he says, You better go, because your people have turned to worship things that their hands have made. And Moses goes down, and a whole lot of things ensue. But the single greatest and largest worship gathering in all of Scripture was not by pagans, But it was by God's people, people that God had redeemed and rescued, now engaging in the things that God despises. Now, I say that only by way of saying our our infatuation with size does not always equate God's great blessing. That's not saying that megachurches and huge worship gatherings are, are bad by any means. But it's just a word to be careful because we are tempted in our lives to look at other churches and look at other movements and look at what they have from facilities to size to things to staff and long for and want to compare and measure ourselves and try and keep up with that. And when we don't have that, we want to purchase more, engage in more, do more, grow more so that somehow those other folks will think that we are in that category of people. Two weeks, two weekends ago, I met with a, a group of guys that I've been meeting with for years. Uh, We met together every Monday in uh, college for like six years. I know, I was there for a long time. We met every Monday for six years, and this group of guys that made me with brothers, six of them, most of them are all in full-time ministry, and four of us got together from Mississippi and Florida and Dallas, and we got together just to spend time together. 
try and do it every now and again. It's been a little while. And I have a good buddy who's a church planter in Dallas. And we were talking about the sort of woes and struggles and joys of doing this thing. And he said, you know, the problem of being here in Dallas is that unless you're a thousand people in your church, nobody even pays attention to you. Like, they don't care. You're nobody. We were talking about that kind of truth. And in our Western culture, we ascribe these movements of size. And so he was saying, I'm so tempted to always push to try and hit that marker so that people will think we are doing something. This is what we do as churches, right? We compare, we look at them, and they say, man, I can't believe that's many people. And social media fuels this, right? We post all these incredible things, and, and, but we've got to fight the urge. Because size and growth and movement is not always an indicator of God's hand. You see, when God's hand is on a community, it will grow. But we can also grow without God's hand. We can engage in the things that God despises and be large. But when God's hand is upon us, growth is inevitable. But the question becomes, what is growth? As we start talking about spiritual maturity, discipline, and obedience. So if our goal is obedience as a church, as, as an authentic follow, a community of Christ followers, right? And not to try and keep up with every other little movement around here or large movement around here. And it's hard for those of us that have been laboring for four and five years with this community to kind of go, oh, somebody sneezed and they got a thousand, right? Who cares, right? We are here and we're trying to be obedient and authentic to what God is doing. Now, I say that not as by way of comforting my own or by saying you are part of something that God, I think, is honoring and blessing. And we have to fight the urge to constantly want to be more to keep up with what everybody else has, to make sure we have the right children's ministry, the right staff, the right this, the right facility, the right, 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 right. The truth is, this is also very true for our personal lives, isn't it? Now, this is not explicitly in the text, but it's worth mentioning. I mean, we live in this thing. We live with constantly comparing our lives to those around us. We look at the people around us and we, we do everything we can to say, well, I want to measure or compare or keep up with people, Right? We may not do it, but we long for it. We want it. It's, it's that part of our heart that says, I'm not content with my own life. I want to be that. And we equate whatever they have with why are they being blessed and I am not. Basically saying, God, I, what you've given me is not enough. We've got to fight that urge in our personal lives. We have to fight that urge as a church. But we've got to fight the urge to measure and compare and try and keep up just to say our own sort of Western standards of stuff and materialism and size, right? Instead, we strive to be authentic. Now, coming on the heels of that is another really, really important thing, and you can't mention that first one without mentioning the second, which is this, right? Embrace the move of God in yourself and in other people, right? Be an encourager, don't be a hater. Now, I say that uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I, I really do mean it. Because the truth is, is that most of us have got a jealous or envious spirit inside of us. Taking that first point, we look at our lives and we look at what other people have and we become jealous and envious of where they are. How they were raised, what they've got, you know, what they're doing, why their husband does this or their wife does that or their kids are like this. And like I said, social media fuels both sides of that bankrupt lie, right? We post what we want people to see and we see what people post. The truth is, is that none of it is real. And the truth probably isn't even somewhere in the middle. It's all smoke and mirrors. But the reality is it fuels that part of me that is envious and jealous. Happens in our Christian communities as well, right? But I say that to mention what we see happen in Barnabas here is incredible. 
Because if you think about it, the church in Jerusalem is struggling. It's not flourishing like these churches in Joppa and Caesarea and in Antioch. There's only a few people there, and they are experiencing a famine, and they are not having the incredible sort of thousand people movements of God that are happening in these other Gentile cities. And yet Barnabas comes up, probably sent to make sure that what was happening up there was actually not crazy heresy. And he comes up, and instead of being jealous and frustrated and upset about what was happening and why it wasn't happening in Jerusalem and why he wasn't experiencing it in his own life or why they were still struggling for food, when these Gentiles up here were seeing the Holy Spirit move, instead of being frustrated like that or upset, what does he do? He says he was excited for them. He was genuinely joyful for them. He embraced the move of God in their life, and he encouraged them. He told them to be true to the Lord. And he went one step further. He went and got Paul, and they stayed there for a year teaching those people. A lot of us, not you, of course, but me, a lot of us, look at people. We see the things that happen in their life, and instead of being joyful, genuinely joyful for them when something goes on or when God moves, we secretly in our hearts wonder, when will that happen for us? Why am I still empty here? And God is doing that over there. We've got to be a people in a church that genuinely embraces the move of God, not only in ourselves, but in other people. When other churches experience incredible success and blessing, we should be standing and rejoicing with them. When other people in your life experience blessing or God's movement, you should be a part of their lives. Be an encourager of people. This was Barnabas. His very name is son of encouragement. And it was expressed here deeply. The New Testament paints a beautiful picture of Barnabas because his character was so true. And he gets there, and instead of being frustrated about what he doesn't have or why the church is struggling, he just is excited for them. Be someone that's excited for other people. I mean, genuinely excited. Instead of sort of half-heartedly excited and frustrated about what you really are wrestling with, let it go. Don't be a hater. Now, the, real, the reality is most of us are here in this little church because we've somewhere along the lines decided to be a hater of another movement. Believe it or not, this church did not grow because all of you are brand new believers in Christ. Most of you are here because you are disenchanted with some other church movement. And not to be offensive, but that's just the reality of how things go. You look at that other church and you say, I can't believe they would do this, a pastor did that, or they did this, or they didn't do that, or they were too big, and so we're looking for something better. We bring all of our little dirty baggage in here, and we say, great, now this is what I want. And I've got 150 people with baggage about churches they hate. Awesome, right? Guess what? I've got it too. I've got it too. And that's what I mean when I say don't be a hater. Like, what? good does that do? We waste so much of our lives, right? So much of our lives being frustrated about situations that we've been in or have left. Who cares? Let's celebrate what God is doing there. God is obviously using those movements. God is obviously doing things. Celebrate that. Be excited about that. Quit holding that resentment and that bitterness and that grudge to whatever it is. Life is too short to engage that. Plus, God calls us out of those things. There's a freedom in surrendering our lives to God because we can surrender those things. So what we see in this text is if we're going to begin to live like Barnabas, really like Barnabas, right? 
We've got to fight that urge to compare and to keep up and to measure, right? We've got to be genuinely excited, embracing the move of God in other people, or even just good things that happen to other people. We've got to quit carrying that baggage around that's full of resentment, wondering why life is so heavy all the time. It's because you're dragging all this garbage with you. So why was Barnabas a good man? Luke tells us he's a good man. You know why he's a good man? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. Not because he did anything. Barnabas was a result of Jesus' movement in his life. It wasn't because Barnabas had figured out all these steps and was going to live differently and was actively pushing through. No, he just surrendered his life to the Holy Spirit, and it changed the way he saw the world. Barnabas was a good man because he was full of the Holy Spirit. When we surrender our lives truly to the Holy Spirit of God, it changes the way that we see the world and the way that we live. If you're wrestling with envy and jealousy and frustration and bitterness and anger, I can promise you you're not surrendering your heart to the Holy Spirit. And it's why you continue to see the world through yourself. So we've got to fight that urge. We've got to be genuinely engaged in the movements of other people, right? To be encouragers and to drop the baggage. But my favorite part of this whole text is that last little section. Last little section. So Barnabas and Paul are there and they are teaching thousands of people. The church is exploding. It's an incredible year. And sometimes during that year, this prophet who was kind of given a word by the Lord, because it tells him he's full of the Spirit, named Agabus, shows up and he says, hey, I've got some bad news. There's a famine coming, and it's going to impact the entire Roman world. In fact, Luke tells us that it actually happened, right? It happened during one of the reigns of one of the emperors. And we know that that famine has begun in Jerusalem. Josephus talks about it. One of the great historians began in Jerusalem, and it made its way all the way north of the Roman Empire. So Agabus stands up and he says, there's a famine, and it's coming your way, and it's already hit Jerusalem and Judea. So this new little fledgling group, this little church gets together, right? There's big, and there are a lot of people, but they're all new in their faith, and they get together and basically decide that they've got to do something, right? So it says they got together, and they decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea, and they did this, and they sent their gifts to the elders, and they all gave according to their own ability. Now think about this for a minute, all right? Bear with me, because this doesn't seem remarkable, but it's pretty amazing. So think about the church in Jerusalem for a moment. Upper class, I mean educated guys, all Jewish leaders, right, for the most part. Converts, they've been scattered a little bit, but the apostles remained, and and they were kind of uh, like Jesus' inner circle, and and they were a part of this sort of deep movement. But Jerusalem was a, was a wealthy city for the most part. And it was the hub of all religious activity. And for centuries, they thought everybody else outside of Jerusalem and Judea was second class. In fact, some of these countries they wouldn't even walk through. They wouldn't even put their feet in countries like Samaria. They were better than the rest of the world. And for even up until just a few years ago, even maybe one year ago, they were telling the Gentiles that they had no promise of God. That God wanted nothing to do with them. So here you are, a Gentile believer. God is raining blessings upon you, and you hear that the church in Jerusalem is starving to death, most literally starving to death. Now, I don't know about you, but let's say that this was happening in our culture today. Let's say that in a city down, I don't know, maybe about as far away as Dallas, a couple hours away, was having a huge famine. There was no food to be found. And let's say that famine was taking place in an area that was kind of known to be really wealthy, like 
Highland Park or something. And, and that famine was striking families there. And for years, those folks in Dallas, which is not true, but just by hypothetically speaking, thought that we were worse and second-class citizens in Oklahoma, and they wouldn't even come this side of the river. All right? So somebody shows up, and they say, hey, guess what? Those folks in Dallas, in that area, they're starving to death. And that famine is going to be here in a matter of months, maybe less. And it's going to last, who knows, maybe even a year. Oklahoma City is about to be without food. What do you do? I mean, come on. I know exactly what we do. We drive to Target and we buy all the milk and eggs because that's what we do in crisis. You know, I make French toast in the snowstorms or whatever, but we buy all the milk and eggs. If you knew that a famine was coming, you would do everything you could to protect your family and you would send a note to tell those people in Dallas you were praying for them. It's what we would do as a church, Right? And it's sad. It is. Because survival and protection of myself is number one. You tell me that's coming, and the first thing I will do is rally around to protect my own. And I will pray for you when I think about it. And I know I say that in a trivial way, but just think about it for a moment. That's what's happening here. This second-class group of people, right, has now been given this gift, which sort of irked all the does in Jerusalem. And they've been living in this sort of total separate way, and now these people are starving. And, and they sent a prophet up here, and they heard about it. And so what do we do? Well, we better rally ourselves and store up all our grain. No way. You know what they did? They got together, and they all gave according to what they could. And they sent the money to Jerusalem to buy food, knowing full well the famine was coming right where they were. As a people... And as a church, we are live generously. Our culture, our Western culture, I know it sounds like I'm kind of hating, I'm not, but it's just we are a tight-fisted culture. We give out of abundance. You need something? Let me count all mine up and see that I have enough, and then you can have what's left over, maybe. We're taught that all through grade school. We share, but only after I've had mine, right? The reality is, is that we are tight-fisted, we give out of our abundance only after we've protected ourselves and our churches are the worst. We are survival and maintenance at all cost. We give mission budgets in relation only to after we've taken care of all these things. And once we do all these things and we pay homage to all the things that our hands have built, we give a percentage, seven, eight, nine, whatever, to other folks. Overgeneralization, I get it the reality of that message is true. Living as the church in Acts is beautifully petrifying to me. Because it is the opposite of the way that I live in every single category. I am selfish. I am jealous. I am envious. I'm about my own maintenance and my own survival at all costs. And that makes me want to vomit. But it's true. And as a church, we are plagued with those exact same things. We've got to fight this at all costs. If we're going to be a church that echoes its movements to the book of Acts, we've got to fight all those ingrained, inborn things inside of us that say, me, I want, I need, survive, survive, protect. Fight the urge to compare and measure up and look at what everybody else is doing and say, why won't God bless us? Authenticity and obedience are all we're striving for. 
if we're obedient to the Holy Spirit, God will do what God will do, right? It's never been the movement of this church to try and grow. It's always been the movement of this church to be obedient to God's call. Embrace the move of God in yourself and in other people. Quit looking at them and wishing you had or you would or God would do this. Be content with what God is doing in you. Embrace his move and be genuinely excited for other people. When they tell you something great, don't trump them with your story. When they tell you they met the governor, don't tell them about the time you met the president. Just be a listener. Be an encourager. Encourage people. And don't be a hater. Drop your resentment and your baggage about church and life. No one needs it anymore. It's a waste of time and breath. God has moved us past all of that through Jesus Christ. And then finally, live generously. Like be a person, be a family, be a community that lives generously, that says this doesn't make sense. We should be saving up for ourselves, storing for our own famine. But instead, let's be involved in the lives of other people. Invite someone into your home. Meet your neighbors. Bring them into your circle. Be generous with your life and your resources and your heart. The greatest resource you could ever give a single soul is your time and yourself. So invest in other people. Live generously. Do things that don't make sense. Because you want to be someone that has been filled with the Holy Spirit and it alters the way that you see and the way that you live.